You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. It's the optimistic story that we've been longing to buddy here, and it's just not being told. Natural gas, oil, wind, solar, buildings, mobility, they're all starting to intertwine into one big tangled mess <laughs> that is full of opportunity. For November 23rd, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is the first show in a new format we are piloting for the Energy Transition Show. Instead of exploring a particular topic with one guest who has a non-commercial perspective, as most of our shows so far have done, this new format aims to tell the stories about how the energy transition is proceeding in some of the places I'm visiting in my travels. Through interviews with multiple local experts, including those who are working in the energy sector, we hope this new format will help to demonstrate how the unique challenges and opportunities in every place will determine its particular path through the energy transition. In time, I hope to tell those stories about places all over the world. But to ease into the new format, I wanted to start with a show about a U.S. state. So when I launched into my new lifestyle as a peripatetic podcaster in the summer of 2021 and thought about which U.S. state I'd like to feature for the pilot of this new format, I didn't have to think about it for very long. Vermont was an obvious choice. When it comes to the energy transition, Vermont stands out as a place that punches way above its weight. It has innovated numerous policies and mechanisms to reduce its energy consumption and carbon emissions that have been emulated by other U.S. states. And it continues to serve as a model to the rest of the country for effective energy transition strategies. Vermont has established itself as a leader in the energy transition despite its stature. With a population of just 643,000 people, it is the second least populated state in the U.S. after Wyoming. It's also physically small. At about 9,600 square miles in size, it is the nation's sixth smallest state. But it can lay claim to being the first to achieve a number of impressive accomplishments in the energy transition. In 2021, Vermont generated nearly 100% of its electricity from renewable resources, a larger share than any other U.S. state. In 2014, Vermont's largest city, Burlington, became the first in the U.S. to be 100% powered by renewable energy. Vermont consumes the least total energy and has the lowest energy-related carbon dioxide emissions of all the U.S. states. Vermont was the first state to create a utility dedicated to improving electric efficiency. Vermont has a dedicated electricity transmission utility that is the only U.S. transmission utility required by law to give back to customers any excess profits. According to that utility, there is no state in the nation that requires more of a transmission utility to not build transmission than Vermont. And Vermont's largest utility was the first in the nation to use customer-owned battery and EV charging systems bidirectionally as grid assets. You'll learn more about all these accomplishments, as well as what makes Vermont such an exemplar in the energy transition, in this two-part miniseries. While a small state like Vermont may seem like an unlikely inspiration for the global energy transition, I'm sure that our listeners in 47 countries around the globe will find some useful ideas in these shows that they can apply to their own energy transitions. So in October of 2021, I visited Vermont, and over the course of a week, I recorded the interviews you'll hear in these episodes. I should also confess that I had another reason to want to visit Vermont. It's fall colors. Vermont is famous for them. 
Its pin cherry, red oak, and of course its red maple trees produce a brilliant display of yellow, orange, and red colors in the autumn. But growing up in the American West, I had never seen its fabled display. It was on my bucket list, and although I arrived at a time when the peak colors would normally have been passed, climate change had brought a long, hot summer to the Northeast, and fall fell later than usual, so I got to see much of it after all, and I can highly recommend it. I can also highly recommend a visit to one of Vermont's many small, family-owned maple sugaring operations, where you can taste various grades of maple syrup and all manner of tasty treats made with maple sugar. I particularly liked the Maple Creamy, a maple-flavored soft-serve ice cream topped with little crystals of maple sugar. Delicious. In this first part, you'll hear about the supply side of Vermont's energy transition, including its long traditions of policy and activism in support of environmental protection and sustainability. And in the second part, we'll focus in on the demand side, including the many ways that Vermont is improving its energy efficiency and using various technologies to make its use of energy as flexible, equitable, and minimal as possible. Let's dive in. To get me oriented to the wide range of energy transition stories in Vermont, I started with John Dillon, who spent 20 years as a reporter and news director for Vermont Public Radio at the end of a long career in public journalism. John covered climate change and various energy and climate stories in Vermont that earned him several Edward R. Murrow Awards and has a long institutional memory of how the state's energy policy has unfolded. He generously gave me several hours of his time to discuss some of the major issues in the state. At his suggestion, we met at the Capitol building in Montpelier, and he showed me around the chambers of the legislature and the governor and gave me an introduction to some of the state's major historical figures and events. Then we went to his old offices at Vermont Public Radio down the street for the interview. As long as I've been covering energy in Vermont, the state's always been in an energy transition. And then for decades before that, going back to the Depression and initial electrification of the region, we had a governor, George Aiken, who later became a U.S. senator, who was very much, although he was a Republican, was very much against the dominant investor-owned utility structure and appointed consumer-oriented people to the Public Service Commission, was in favor of public power, initial backer of the Rural Electrification Administration. Through the switch when the last Vermont town became electrified in the Depression with a small co-op. So that was his orientation, was sort of the rural consumer focus and against the big money boys, as he called them. Hmm. So that was the transition back then. There was also a big debate back then over whether local investor-owned utilities were going to build power plants or whether we were going to bring it in from Canada, which is a, a preview of the debate that we're in now over Canadian hydropower. So that debate has played out several times. It played out in the 1960s when the state's investors owned utilities instead of buying power from Hydro-Quebec and Churchill Falls, built the state's only nuclear power plant, Vermont Yankees. We'll learn more about Hydro-Quebec and the Vermont Yankee power plant later in this show. But the idea that Vermont's political leadership, and especially its state legislature, had for decades sought to develop its own clean energy sources is one that was repeated by many of the people I interviewed. One of those people was Richard Cowart, a principal at the Regulatory Assistance Project, or RAP, which supports energy regulators all over the world. 
with a long and distinguished career that included stints with the International Energy Agency, the U.S. Department of Energy, and the University of California, as a member of the Board of the Electric Power Research Institute, a member of the Environmental Advisory Committee of the New York Independent System Operator, and the Chair of the Board of Directors of the Vermont Energy Investment Corporation, and as a longtime regulator in multiple capacities, including as Commissioner and Chair of the Vermont Public Service Board, Vermont's Public Utility Regulator, Richard has an enormous wealth of knowledge about how the state has approached its various energy transition efforts over the years. I met him at RAP's offices in Montpelier, where we talked about some of the legislature's major initiatives. Tell me about the Vermont Climate Council and some of the interesting initiatives that it has underway that are relevant to the energy transition. The legislature has created a really ambitious agenda for the Climate Council, not only to come forward with a climate action plan that reduces emissions substantially in line with IPCC recommendations and the Paris Accords, and those reductions are mandatory under the Vermont law, but also to do so in a way that enhances energy justice, that is transparent with respect to the public, and which tackles the most important energy problems that we face. Interestingly, in Vermont, in contrast to a lot of other places, the electric sector is not our biggest problem. We have taken initiatives over the past 20 years in Vermont to advance pretty aggressively on energy efficiency and on renewable power. So the electric sector in Vermont, compared to other places around the world, is pretty clean. The big problems in Vermont now are transportation and the thermal sector. So transportation is more than a third of our total climate emissions. Thermal sector, that is heating, and in Vermont not so much cooling, but heating of buildings, heating of hot water, and some industrial process heat, altogether is about 34% of our emissions. So coming up with policies that will address emissions in transportation and buildings are huge challenges. Vermont is in the enviable position of obtaining nearly all of its in-state electricity from renewables and other clean sources, 99.8% to be precise, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. And that's no accident. They set that target years ago and worked toward it. But what does that mean exactly? According to Vermont's 2020 Annual Energy Report, the most recent report published by the State Department of Public Service that breaks down the supply data, Vermont's total physical electricity supply, including imports in 2018, came from the following sources. 36% from hydropower, 30% from nuclear, 11% from wind, 7% from biomass, 6% from solar, about 2.7% from fossil fuels, and about 6% from a miscellaneous system mix category. The system mix reflects the mix of power imported from the New England ISO, the regional wholesale power system, which includes 53% generation from fossil gas. Vermont compensates for the fossil fuel portions of its power by buying renewable energy certificates, or RECs. After the sale and purchase of RECs, Vermont's 2018 mix was 61% hydro, 30% nuclear, 2% solar, and 7% system mix, with negligible quantities of wind and biomass, hence the claim to nearly 100% clean power. 
excluding imports and looking at its in-state generation only, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, in 2021, about 50% came from hydro, 22% came from biomass, 17% from solar, which was evenly split between utility-scale and small-scale solar, and 16% came from wind, hence the claim to nearly 100% renewable generation. And we should note that there is some debate in Vermont about whether power generation from biomass and hydro should be rightly called renewable, as we will hear later on. To understand how Vermont achieved its goal of obtaining essentially all of its electricity from renewables, I spoke with its utilities, beginning with Darren Springer, the general manager of Burlington Electric. Previously, he was a deputy commissioner at the Vermont Public Service Department, an agency within the executive branch of Vermont state government that, among other things, represents the public interest in utility cases before the PUC. His prior experience includes working in the offices of Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Patrick Leahy, and while he was with the Vermont Public Service Department, he led the advancement of the state's 2014 net metering law, as well as its 2015 renewable energy standard. So he has an excellent memory of what it took to get Vermont to this point. I asked Darren to explain how Burlington achieved its renewable goal. Starting in about 2004, there was a concerted effort by the Electric Commission to say we want to move away from fossil fuels and nuclear and move towards being 100% renewable in Burlington. And that was completed under our current mayor, Mayor Merle Weinberger, and Burlington Electric in 2014 with the Winooski One Hydro purchase. So we're 100% renewable when it comes to our generation mix. Right. So give me a description of the portfolio. Like, how did you get to that 100% renewables? Right now, we actually have more than 100% renewable. So we cover not only our kind of sales to customers, but probably our any transmission losses as well, some other things. So we're, I think in 2020, we were more like 108% renewable. Wow. If you were to look at the portfolio, a little bit more than a third is from biomass from the McNeil plant. About a little over a third is from hydro total. A little less than a third, more like around 27% is coming from wind. Two projects in Vermont that we get output from, and then one in Maine. And then a small but growing slice from in-city solar. We had basically no solar in the city of Burlington to speak of back in 2010. And now in 2021, we've got over 9 megawatts. And we're a 60 to 65 megawatt peaking system. So 9 megawatts can be significant. That's significant. So is that mostly just distributed, like rooftop solar? It is. It's a lot of distributed, net metered, and then we have a few larger projects, some that are on city facilities, uh, including here at our building at 585 Pine Street, 500 kW at our airport, and then a 2.5 megawatt, which is our largest project in the city, which is a project we have a power purchase agreement with in the north end of the city. So Hmm. it's a mix of all those. Notably, Burlington Electric achieved its goal of having 100% renewable power generation without raising rates for more than a decade. Its first real rate increase in 12 years came in 2021, after the utility lost over $2 million due to lower demand during the pandemic, not because of its investments in the energy transition. John Dillon recalls some of the challenges to increasing the share of renewable power in Vermont. I think we've punched above our weight in terms of renewable development, especially solar, yeah, because it's not the Southwest, you mm-hmm. know, it's the Northeast, it's cloudy, it's got winter, and we've got a lot of solar development. How much development is there for wind and solar then in Vermont? I think there's five utility scale 
ridgeline wind. So the best wind resources at upper elevations, and which so you got the spine of the Green Mountains, and then other mountain ranges. Mountains in Vermont are not like mountains out west. The tallest is 4,300 feet or something like that. But it's windier up there than it is down here. Yeah. So Green Mountain Power built one. First Wind built another. And these are both in the northern part of the state. There's one in the southern part of the state and a couple of smaller ones. But there is strong, again, local opposition. Vermont's got a strong tradition of citizen activism and environmentalism, and that played out in renewable energy development. I think wind has been more contentious than solar. Both were helped by government policies, production tax credits on the federal level, state energy policy that gave a priority to siting renewable projects in the state. So developers like the production tax credits that they can get from building these, and they are also incentivized by the legislature to develop renewable resources. So solar has really boomed. If you look at the growth of solar, it's been massive. Johanna Miller, the Energy and Climate Program Director for the Vermont Natural Resources Council, or VNRC, also sees solar as a major and growing part of Vermont's clean energy portfolio. Johanna collaborates closely with numerous organizations to help advance clean energy and climate action programs and policies in the state, and in 2020, she was appointed to the Vermont Climate Council, which is charged with crafting a plan to meet the objectives of the state's Global Warming Solutions Act, a 2020 law that includes legally binding emissions requirements. She has served on numerous boards and committees for several decades to advance the environmental and energy policy in the state, and seems to know everyone working on those initiatives. We sat down in her backyard in Montpelier to talk with the beautiful red and gold leaves of autumn falling all around us. I think the solar sector has played a really important leadership role in the state of Vermont. A lot of Vermonters have gone solar. A lot of Vermonters are interested in going solar because solar added such value to the grid that Vermont really incentivized the deployment of solar energy. And that pendulum swung pretty far out in support of deploying a lot of solar. And now our grid load, the shape of our load has changed. So Hmm. solar has added a little bit less value because now the highest, the most intense time is when people come home, it's like more of a nighttime load. And so solar is still really important. The incentives for solar have changed pretty significantly, and we need to figure out sort of a solar strategy 2.0, because solar in Vermont has really largely been deployed through two primary programs, net metering and the standard offer program, net metering in particular. Since net metering has apparently played such an important role in encouraging the growth of solar, and especially rooftop solar, it's worth taking a closer look at it. In an effort to encourage the growth of distributed and rooftop solar systems, Vermont offered generous incentives starting in 1998. Unlike net metering in most states, Vermont allows small-scale solar systems, including rooftop systems, to export more power to the grid than the host customer consumes, and it pays an above-market rate for that power. According to the state's 2021 annual energy report, in 2019, about 75% of the generation produced by net metered resources was exported directly to the grid and not used on site. 
New participating customers receive $0.17 cents per kilowatt hour for their exported power, slightly above the 2021 statewide blended retail rate for power at $0.16.4 cents per kilowatt hour, and way above the average 2019 wholesale energy price in New England of $0.03 cents per kilowatt hour. Net metered customers who joined the program earlier received as much as $0.30 cents per kilowatt hour. But new solar resources, like solar farms, are now being built outside the net metering system for a cost of less than $0.10 per kilowatt hour. Accordingly, the state is concerned about the cost of net metered solar driving up rates for all customers and is calling for a reform of the net metering compensation scheme. I asked Darren Springer for his perspective on it. One of the things that I think is particularly interesting about net metering in Vermont is that you're actually paying an above retail rate. Normally, net metering means you get the retail rate. So how important do you think that has been as a policy support to encourage the deployment of rooftop solar in Vermont? I think it's definitely been important. In 2014, we really put in a bill that built on that, and we had hit the cap, I think, was 4% of mm. the utility peak. And we had hit that cap, I think, a couple times. We hit it at 2%, then we hit it at 4%. And we had this adder in place that said, you got 20 cents, essentially, for solar instead of what your retail rate was. And we were able to keep that going with some modifications in 2014 and expand the program. We set a new cap of 15%. I think we've well passed that at this point. We have no cap now on net metering as a result of the 2014 law. Thank God. So, you know, no customer <laughs> who wants to put solar on the roof is going to be told you can't put solar on your right, roof. Right. I think that's an important principle. On the other hand, we've seen a lot of larger scale net metering, 500 kilowatt projects, community scale projects. I think the policy tension has been how do you turn the dials in the right way to get the deployment that you want, but keep the cost as reasonable for customers as possible? And that's where our PUC has been making adjustments to the net metering program as they go to try to keep the costs in line with the benefits. But no doubt in my mind that having that incentive initially really jump-started solar along with the federal tax credit being expanded in 2008 to the 30% level and being held at that level for a period of time. Right. Well, it's not hard to imagine the PUC eventually ratcheting down that incentive so that your net metering payment is going to be at the retail rate. I think it's possible. We've definitely moved in that direction in terms of there has been some ratchet from the PUC. John Dillon is not surprised. He's been hearing complaints about customers paying for net metered solar priced above the market rate for electricity for years. There's been pushback in recent years from regulators about the impact to consumers from the subsidized rates that are paid for these net meter projects. So the net meter projects benefit from rates set by the state that are above market. So 8 to 12, 15 cents a kilowatt hour, whereas you can buy power for, depending on the time of day and time of year, less than that. So people without the projects are paying for the wires and transmission costs and energy costs of these projects. And so the regulators have dialed back those rates. So Vermont's got a ton of these small little utilities, and this guy is with Hardwick Electric, which is a little town north of here, and he was basically saying, we could put up a one megawatt array, pay for it ourselves, and they had a competing project to do that, but they're obligated to buy net metered power at 
a certain price and he says we can do it for cheaper you know owning it ourselves right right. developing in themselves not merchant in the market but just doing it for themselves so this guy and this was in 2018 says they credit power from large net metered installations at about 17 cents a kilowatt hour he said that's twice the cost of power from a solar project that hardwick electric is developing on its own so there's been pushback on net metering, but that policy really, really caused a boom in solar development. To complete the picture of how Vermont obtains so much renewable electricity, I spoke with Green Mountain Power. Green Mountain Power, or GMP as it is sometimes called, is the largest utility in Vermont, an investor-owned utility serving a little over three-quarters of the customers in the state. I sat down with Vice President Josh Castengay, their Chief Innovation and Engineering Executive, to get his perspective on how net metering has contributed to the growth of solar in Vermont. Yeah, so... The interesting thing about where net metering has been to now is the good news is like the price of solar, the cost of solar has come down tremendously over the last 10 years. And the program itself has followed that price of solar a little bit. I think for us, the way we think about it is we got to keep getting more distributed generation out there more quickly to more customers in a way that's, that's cost beneficial to everybody. So I think that metering has served a really important purpose and continues to, especially for the smaller rooftop stuff and the residential programs. And where we're thinking about is there are new ways to do like community solar, for example. Mm-hmm. I get, there's a lot of homes that probably can't do solar on their roof for one reason or another, or right. in the woods or just can't take it or renters. So we're really focused on how do we get even more people connected to distributed generation so we get more of it out there. And we do it in a way that's cost effective for everybody across mm-hmm. the board. So I have... No doubt in my mind that we're going to continue to see strong deployment solar here as we look forward. We're driving towards 100% renewable mix of our own by 2030. We're already 100% carbon free and we're 68%, I think it is, yeah, 68% renewable today and driving that to 100 and a big piece of that, it continues to be like in-state distributed. We'll hear more about Green Mountain Power's portfolio a little later. But first, let's learn more about the biomass side of Vermont's power generation. As Darren Springer mentioned, a bit more than a third of Burlington Electric's generation is from the wood-burning McNeil Station power plant. And using biomass for power generation is an idea that has become more controversial, even among energy and climate activists. I asked Darren to tell me more about its history and how Vermonters feel about its continued use. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. 
Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.